belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message from March 26, 2023 is called Don't Miss the Point. The teacher is Jennifer A. Cuff, and the location is Cop Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. As an obsessive fixer and reformer, I would dare say a professional reformer at this point, um, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to do things just right and better next time, um, better than the last time. If I'm lost in thought, sometimes my husband will ask me, what are you thinking about? And I'll be thinking about something that happened three hours ago, just thinking about what I could have done a little bit better, a little bit differently. I do that all the time. Um, things I tell myself on a daily basis are we learn things now the hard way so that we can do them better the next time or every failure is an opportunity to learn and improve I guess I haven't learned that yet but I will okay these aren't bad things to tell myself or the students that I advise but they are things that have me constantly looking ahead which is fine but sometimes it's to the point that I miss what's happening right now in this moment and I'll miss maybe some finer points Right, so um, I do the same thing with grief and suffering. I want to learn and improve my way out of bad circumstances. It's second nature for me to do a root cause analysis over everything negative to figure out what put us here um, and exactly how it came to be so that I can avoid it in the future and never be here again, right? Um, and I do this for people I love too. I wanna, I wanna do a root cause analysis on why their pain is is existing, right? I don't want to see the suffering for anyone. But what if that's missing the point? And I want to clarify, that's not a everything happens for a reason phrase. That's not it. But what if there's another point that we're missing, right? Something that's more important to learn than just how do I have to not ever feel this way again, right? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Lamentations gives us a picture of a community's expression and remembrance of suffering. So that's what all five chapters do. It captures um, this piece of suffering that Israelites experienced. It documents it, and they relived it every year. It was that important. Um, thus far, the picture has been very bleak, filled with images of gross injustice experienced by an entire community, even those who were just children or weren't even born when their forefathers abandoned God. Okay, so they weren't even necessarily responsible for some of the things that happened that led them to this point. The picture in chapter 5 is not prettier or resolved, um, but it does give us what I think is kind of our first glimpse of hope um, and what it is to have hope in the midst of true suffering. So chapter 5 actually characterizes the relationship between God and God's people. Modern Christianity often objectifies God, um, and uh, it's this om omnipotent being that we only approach with systematic respect. Um, but Lamentations, like a couple of other books in the Bible, highlight this relational communication that we can and are encouraged to have, a direct communication, not talking about, but talking to. Lamentations 5 breaks the pattern of an acrostic poem that all the other chapters have had thus far, which, as someone who does not read that language that it was originally wrote, written in, uh, it doesn't really hit me very well, uh, or doesn't really kind of connect with me until I realize that chapter five is different. Chapter five loses the acrostic. The acrostic is what brought all of this awful chaos into some sort of order. 
chapter five loses that. The wheels have come off. It's just, it's just I would say, a pretty, pretty uh, direct cry out, okay? Very little structure, so it's very chaotic. But it still follows a typical pattern of lament. First, there's an address to God. Then there's the lodging of a complaint, the proposing of a request, providing some sort of motivation for God to act, and finally expressing confidence in God's ability to right the wrong. So we're going to look at how engaging in these five steps, these five parts of a lament um, or practices of lament, build our relationship with God and give us that glimpse of hope. So the first step of relational address, okay? The first verse of this chapter says, O Lord, reflect on what has happened to us. Consider and look at our disgrace. Playing open the situation, asking God to look at it. Okay, that's actually a pretty, um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty bold move, right? Um, you guys know the, the, the commercials, the ASPCA commercials with like Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> singing and it's like showing all these sad pictures of animals. Who skips the commercial? In the arms of an angel, right? We skip it or we look away. We're asking God to look at it. Look at it. These verses show a two-way line of communication that these people expected to have with God. When we objectify God as some king, we're not asking God to look at it. Look at us. If, if God was just a king, we wouldn't march into the courts and make demands. That'd be the quickest way to die, right? But that's not the way these people saw God. There's only one line of communication if we think of God only as a king. One would never do this unless you trusted the boundaries of this relationship. Okay? How we see that God's people view themselves as God and, and, and themselves as actor, active members of the relationship is key. Okay? Uh, in a book called Hurting with God, a former professor of mine wrote at um, Abilene Christian, Glenn Pemberton, he said, God is either an intimate friend to whom we speak our true thoughts and feelings, or God, in fact, is no friend at all. And in the teaching meeting, John and Alex brought up a point made by Katie Rogers when we were at their ranch, that um, for there to be um, a fully functional and true and safe relationship, no has to be a safe option. We have to be able to say no, we have to be able to disobey, we have to be able to pick another choice without fear of love being stripped away from us. It doesn't mean there won't be natural consequences, but the love will not be removed. And whenever the Israelites cry out to God, these direct pleas, straight to God, look at us. They are testing the boundaries of that relationship and they know that they can and they're encouraged to. After we've addressed God and begged him to look at us, what do we do? Lodge our complaints, right? Got a list, right? Some of their complaints in chapter five were, we have become fatherless orphans. Our mothers have become widows. We must pay money for our own water. We must buy our own wood at a steep price. We're pursued. They're breathing down our necks. We're weary and have no rest. Our hearts no longer have any joy. Our dancing is turned to mourning. And I would say these are actually some of the tamer complaints from Lamentations. Um, the other chapters are much more graphic and I would say describing some even worse scenarios. Um, but these are still awful. 
<clears throat> Betty in the teaching meeting talked about how in Jeremiah there's a description of a funeral um, and this funeral procession. And the way it's described is that God is actually attending the funeral. God is actually there. And so maybe this is part of the point of lodging our complaints. To identify that thing, asking God to engage with us in the suffering. And to believe that God is in that suffering. Okay, This balances the tension of the anger and wrath and allows us to not rush through it because God can be here with us in the suffering. God's listening. We're hurting with God. God is hurting with us rather than without, which is a far worse circumstance. And this actually enriches the relationship, this hurting with God. How do we do that, though, right? How do we feel like God is with us when in that hurt we feel so abandoned? I don't have very good answers on that. But I know that it's true. And I know that with practice, you learn to identify God being with you in the hurt. This is really important, okay? One of the ways we can do this, I think, is by asking questions. Why do you keep on forgetting us? Verse 20 says, why do you forsake us so long? There's, these are very reasonable and natural questions that I think if you've ever been in the pit of despair, um, maybe you relate to. But maybe in addition to those questions, we can ask, what is God feeling while this happens? When we lean into grief, we learn more about the parties that are involved. But when we ignore those tough feelings, as a church community, we aren't learning about grief. We make it actually harder for people who are suffering to walk through our doors. But if we ask the question of what is God feeling right now, if we believe God is here with us, what might God also be feeling? We want to make it our mission to love everybody, but to be honest, I think people might want to be and need to be understood just as much as they want and need to be loved. I'm not sure you can have true love of a person or an entity without really understanding it. Um, babe, I guess I will use this example. A common fight between my spouse and I is at what point we leave the argument. <laughs> Does anybody have that? Does anybody have a partner who's ready to leave the argument much faster than the other? <laughs> Right. Okay. So that's that's constant for us, and it was it it was better understood by both of us um, when our counselor told us, when you want to leave an argument sooner than the other party, you're telling them you don't care. You're telling them that they are caring about something too much, and that you would rather have resolution than understanding. And then you're just going to bring it up again later, right? And I think that is what we can think about with our conflicts, sometimes with God as well. We want to actually understand both parties, and that involves understanding God in the grief, just as much as understanding our own grief, because God is involved in that relationship. So understanding those that we're in community with, whether that's all of us in this room, in our communities, and with God, is key to loving them well. And I think that goes for any relationship. So to really love God and to let God love us, we have to understand one another. One of the best ways to do that is to understand some of that grief. When you meet somebody new in table group, at first it's like, you know, just the casual small talk, right? And probably in a lot of your relationships, you can remember that point that you felt like you really got to know that person. And usually it involved sharing 
something vulnerable, sharing some kind of suffering, something a little bit further than small talk. We have to be willing to do that with God too, if we want to enrich that relationship. So this is why we ask those questions, even the ones that are daunting, the ones you think you shouldn't say out loud, the ones that you definitely won't write down because you want to be stuck with them forever, right? But Matthew 27, 46 describes some of Jesus' last moments on earth, quoting Lamentations. Why have you forsaken me? If he can do it, I think we can too. Jesus trusted the relationship with his father enough to explore the grief in this way. So now we've lodged our complaint. Now we have to follow it with some kind of request, right? Sometimes in grief, the easiest thing to do is just wish for an undo button. That's the easier thing for us to imagine, the past, right? We've done that before. We can even, in my case, imagine all the things we could have done better to avoid it, right? So we would rather just wish for an undo button. The Israelites do the same thing. Bring us back to yourself, O Lord, so that we may return to you. Renew our life as in days before. When we limit ourselves to requests, focus on bringing back, returning days before, we're trying to backtrack, not move forward. Our expectations for justice and repair are always going to be limited to what we can imagine. And this is just kind of a fact, and honestly, it's okay. We cannot envision the future the way God can. That's okay. That's our humanity. We don't know what we don't know. But all signs point to God moving forward, not backwards. So I think it's safe to say that hoping for days and circumstances gone by is probably not going to come to fruition, and it's not going to be fulfilling. But God's restoration will be both for the individual and the community. We can't know what the community needs, but God does. The community will have restoration. This restoration will be timeless, and it will be better than we can possibly imagine. But how do we do this? <clears throat> Initially, I really grazed over this part of the point, <laughs> and then I realized I was missing the point, right? Um, and, and the reason I grazed over it is actually the reason that I struggle a lot with personal and communal lament. Um, and we're going to dive into that particular point in the end as well, but I'm going to tee it up here. Um, so who here likes to ask for help? It depends. It depends. Um, that is fair. Right. That's a lane, right? We all have lanes in which we're comfortable for asking for help, right? But anyone just really enjoy the walking up to someone and being like, I need your help, whether it's simple or big, it's always a, a kind of an expression of vulnerability. I personally hate it. I hate asking for help. I would like to do everything myself. I'm a strong, powerful woman who don't need no man, and I don't want to ask for help ever. This is true. I hate having to ask my husband to open a pickle jar. It is the worst thing, and he knows that I hate it, and so he just rubs it even more. But this is true, okay? I deserve it, right? Um, and uh, personally, I think I struggle with this also because I think that in order to ask for help, to express grief, to be sad about something, I have to be perfect. I have to have done everything I could have done. Otherwise, I don't deserve to ask for this help because I screwed it up. Our table group had a discussion a couple weeks ago about how sometimes we can read about the Israelite suffering and experience a little bit of lack of empathy because we know what they did. They made their bed and they say it. We forsook you. 
we abandoned you. You gave us these couple of simple rules and we blew it. So why are they asking for help? But here they are, asking anyway. A healthy parent-child or spouse or friend relationship says what? Doesn't matter what you've done. There's nothing you could do that would cause me to not want to help you. There's nothing that you could do that should prevent you from asking for help. I don't know if I really believe that, to be honest. I know it's true, but I have a really hard time with it. I really do. But that shows a lack of trust and a lack of confidence in God being bigger than the problem. But when we have confidence and trust in God, it's possible to ask this, even when we may not believe it fully ourselves. Sometimes we have to stop trying to manipulate, stop trying to control, stop trying to fix it ourselves. Stop trying to earn our grace. And ask for help. Demand help. Henry Nowen talks a little bit about this in his book, Bread and Wine, which um, my husband showed me during his Lenten readings. And he talks about we have to learn to quit valuing our lives based on what we can do for ourselves and even what we can do for others, as holy as that may seem. Our lives are not based on that. We have to learn to quit doing this. And when we're in this lament season, we have to think in a new way. What is God or the church doing for us while we stop, sit, and wait? What is happening? When things are out of control for us, it's a time to sit and see what is happening around us, and sometimes for us. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of sitting and waiting, we ask for God to do what only God can, and that is restore. What's the point of Christ offering rebirth if we think we can do it ourselves? Sometimes I imagine <laughs> being in the midst of something awful and thinking I can fix it. And this is like probably like that turn or burn, like grief, um, guilt, uh, motivated theology I grew up with. But imagining Jesus on the cross saying, no, you didn't need to do it. I can fix it. It doesn't work that way. So the next step is motivating God, trying to give God a reason. And this one always cracks me up, honestly, because, like, what could we possibly say that would, like, encourage God more to do what we think should be done. But the Israelites did it really well. Our forefathers sinned and are dead, but we suffer their punishment. Slaves rule over us, and there's no one to rescue us from their power. It's almost like a challenge. Is there anyone to rescue us? Could anyone overpower? They also follow up with, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Some real passive-aggressive comments here, trying to motivate God. It's a bit of a, like, prove it. Prove that you can do it, right? I don't think they would say these things if they didn't believe, though, 
that God could come through, if they didn't believe that God would come through. The Israelites felt like they had to justify their request for restoration by saying that it would glorify God and showcase God's might. And I do think that we do the same things today. I I know we do. It just looks a little bit different. Betty provided this example um, from, uh, was this in British Columbia, the valley? There's a valley in British Columbia that had previously been inhabited by native um, populations. And settlers came, cleared them out, stole the land. And then many, many years later, there was a massive flood that flooded the valley, wiped out everything. And there were conversations being brought up about how this was God's way of restoring back to how he intended. So then it raises questions about origin and cause of sin. Does God cause the suffering of people when they've done wrong? Does God control the natural consequences? We don't have straightforward answers to these, but I think sometimes we ask those questions as a way to ask God to do something and explain this, explain the situation. We often declare that if God were as good as we want to believe, there wouldn't be all of this unnecessary suffering. We ask questions in the hope that God will prove us wrong in our assumptions about the cause of bad circumstances and God's ability to restore. And I think that's okay. I don't think that's testing God. I think that's engaging in the relationship in a way that feels uncomfortable, but that you can only do if you believe the other party is going to listen to those questions and give you an answer. Maybe not today, but eventually. And so the last step of lament is expressing confidence and trust. So when lodging complaints, we might be asking for answers from God. And when we have confidence and trust God, it's possible to ask these questions, these terrifying questions in terrible circumstances, but still have hope. And we can still have hope while answering or while asking these terrible and terrifying questions. You can do both. You do not have to check one at the door to express the other. These things are not mutually exclusive. And we see that while Matthew describes Jesus crying out to God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Luke says that his last words were, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's both an expression of failure, and also trust. Lamentations 5 verse 19 says, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Lamentations isn't a complaint into the void. It's a direct plea to God, making hope and restoration the backbone of lament. None of this matters if the Israelites didn't believe there was something on the other end receiving all of this. We want to express faith and hope by addressing God and acknowledging God's power and ability to change circumstances. And that's part of the confidence and trust. From that book, Hurting with God, Glenn Pemberton writes, The practice of lament hinges on two relational risks. Am I prepared to risk everything in this relationship, including the risk of speaking the truth of my life and experience? And two, 
Am I ready to risk reliance on God, to expect something from God? The easiest way to avoid lament is to never expect anything from God in the first place. Then we're never disappointed and have no need of truthful words for difficult conversations. We have become so self-sufficient that whether God does anything is immaterial to our lives. We're in control, and when I'm in control, I'm disappointed by no one except myself. And I have no need to speak the truth of my life to anyone, including God. This is part of the relationship. I know that I'm plagiarizing this, but I can't remember where I got it from. I think it might have been Glennon Doyle. You cannot love someone or something fully and control it at the same time. You cannot love someone fully and control it at the same time. When we try to control our way out of our suffering, when we try to control the circumstances, we're somewhat saying that we don't trust God to come through. When we have a false sense of control of all of these circumstances around us, we might be putting God in a corner and saying, just stay there. I'll fix it. I got it. Or come on, join once you understand the plan I have here. That's what I fall into. I've got a plan. God's welcome to join. I'm sure God could do great things with my great plan. Lament comes from the lips of those who are not in control. Those dependent on God's next move and disappointed by God's failure. So what do we do when we have expressed the lament? We've expressed our plea, our confidence that God can restore, and then we don't see it happening. We don't see the restoration that we were hoping for or that we truly believe is the right, just restoration. Perhaps our expectations have something to do with it. Our expectations for justice and repair are always going to be limited to what we can imagine, what we can see, what we have seen. But God's restoration is not going to be just for us. It's not going to be just for our time. It's going to be much bigger than us. It will be fulfilling, but in ways that we never expect. Most of the time, our expectations are coming from society. And society telling us what is good, what is reasonable and right. That's not God's example of justice and restoration. Much of Lamentations shows the Israelites' sorrow over the temple being destroyed. This was devastating for them. This is where they met with God. This was so much more than a building. And so their hope and expectation was for a new temple. They needed the temple to have that relationship. But in the book Prophetic Lament, the author Ra states, Yahweh is not limited by the former temple. Yahweh transcends spaces. Where we thought Yahweh existed in the past does not dictate the future restoration. And Jesus is the restoration that the Israelites could not have imagined, despite all of the predictions, all of the, <laughs> all of the verses written down about the Messiah coming. What we see in Palm Sunday next week is not what they expected, is not what they imagined. <laughs>
in the teaching meeting, Laura mentioned that we don't usually have the perspective to see everything, but we know that our seasons of lament do not stay that way forever. So perhaps this idea can help us set our expectations or maybe not set our expectations. Jen Hatmaker on her For the Love podcast mentioned that the women uh, visiting the tomb were there looking for the body and they were devastated when they couldn't find it. And they're interacting with the gardener and they're just, just show us where the body is. Please just take us to the body, right? This is all they're hoping for at this point. What else could they hope for? It's done. Christ is dead. They just want the body. And it's not until they step outside their grief a little bit that they realize this is Jesus. The gardener is Jesus. This is a much bigger thing than they could have ever imagined. So what can we for sure expect? We can expect that aligning our expectations with Jesus' ministry means accepting love and suffering, sometimes together. Richard Rohr says that these are the only two things that bring about real change in our lives, extreme love and extreme suffering. Because they're oftentimes the only things that remove us out of ourselves enough to see the bigger picture and how we fit into it. So we can for sure expect change when we take on the task of holding love and suffering together and expressing that suffering through lament. On the We Can Do Hard Things podcast, Brene Brown said that change is a series of small deaths. Lamentations describes through terrible change, dashed hopes, failed expectations, this death by a thousand cuts. But Jesus offers rebirth. They didn't get to see it in that way at the time. But I think it's beautiful that the Israelites continued to practice this lament over and over and over until they did get to see it. So I'm going to invite the worship team up and those providing communion to go ahead and come up. And I'm going to close with this poem, which reminds us to hold on to hope that suffering in life and tragedies happen, but we hold on to the ultimate hope of restoration through Jesus. It's called The Way It Is by William Stafford. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.